0: it is april 2020 this is behind the dm screen we are three dms talking about our games and helping each other out and i think that's more or less the intro give or take everything in the world is nutty right now so i'm just gonna i'm just kind of making it up as i go how's everybody doing Everybody, everybody hanging in there yeah, it's going alright. Better, better than a lot of people. That's yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think I've been fortunate. I think all—I don't think I've had any of my students, as we switch to online learning. I don't think any of them have um, had health issues yet. So, yeah, um, that's pretty good numbers so far. But we'll see how it plays out in the next few weeks, right? Yep. All right. So we're talking about our games, we're helping each other out. The order today in case you're curious is Mike first and then me Woo. and then Sam. So Mike is just going to talk for like an hour and a half and Sam and yep. I won't get a turn. Um, 10:15. And that'll be that'll <laughs> be fine. <laughs> yeah. Put it on the clock. 10:15. Make note of that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, Mike. Let's jump Go. into it. You're up. Go.
1: All right. So I so two interesting things are happening at the same time. Uh, and I'm curious to hear how it's working for you. And it's probably worth talking about on the show, which is transitioning from a bunch of people sitting around a table to a bunch of people playing online. Uh, so that is a big transition for me. I have run a few online games, but not a lot. And now suddenly I am running all of my games, three different games uh, on, on Discord. I, I decided that Flat Discord was what I wanted to use. Uh, I've used Roll20, I've used Fantasy Grounds. I find that I end up spending more time playing with the tools than actually running a game, and Discord runs really smoothly, and I've got players that only have phones, and they can get Discord to work, but just about nothing else. So. Uh, it works out pretty well. I've talked a lot about it on my other show that I do on Sundays, and I've done a couple of YouTube videos about it, and a couple of articles in Life Flare. Like as I'm learning, I'm throwing what I'm learning out. Uh, the other interesting thing the is the other I,
0: show is the DM's Deep Dive, so people know where they can find more Mike. Shelly.
1: No, no. The other the other show is uh, the Lazy DM Prep Show. Oh, so it okay. is a Twitch show I do Sundays at 10 a.m. where I go through Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master steps while going through while preparing for my uh, Sunday D&D game. Nice. I've been doing that for more than a year, yeah. Uh, so the other thing is I finished both of my Ghost of Saltmarsh campaigns and we started uh, my Eberron campaign. So I've, I've got my copy of Eberron right here. Uh, both my groups said that they were interested, both my weekly groups said they were interested in uh, an Eberron campaign and uh, because there is no uh, sort of WOTC published uh, campaign adventure that means I'm homebrewing it. Okay. And that is a big that's a big, you know, big, a big difference for me. Uh, so I, I kind of sat down and I said, okay, I sort of want a really good, solid, straightforward Eberron campaign that has all the Eberron things in it. Not, not like every one of them, but there's a lot going on in this book. And I, I don't want to sort of like find the, the nook and cranny way off on the upper right-hand side of the map. I'm like, no, we're starting in Sharn. Like the book has like a giant chapter in Sharn. We're going to run it in Sharn. Uh, I'm going to run half the campaign in Sharn and I'm going to run the other half in the Mornland. Uh, there's actually a, 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 a whole lot of Mornland content now because the Adventures League Eberron Adventures are all set in the Mornland. So I have a lot of stuff I can harvest there if I want. Uh, and I wanted to base it off of, you know, when I think about like, well, what was the, what was sort of the, the, uh, some of the underpinnings behind the creation of Eberron is like pulp, pulp action stuff. And I'm like, well, what's better than Rages of the Lost Ark? Right. So I'm going to do. A Raiders of the Lost Ark campaign in Eberron, because I think that fits. You know, we might. I, I, in my opinion, I'd like to try to fit as close to the themes of the campaign or uh, as the, to, of the campaign setting as I can. So rather than trying to twist it too hard, I'm just gonna, you know, there's a lot of obvious things, and I'm gonna go for the obvious stuff rather mm. than than kind of going off into the off into the side. Uh, so my whole campaign is around the idea that various groups and factions are. Either trying to stop or trying to acquire uh, the weapon that caused the mourning. Uh, no one knows what it is. Uh, I don't know what it is, and I haven't. I'm not going to decide what it is until very late in this campaign because I think it's kind of more fun to do it that way. Uh, it's possible that it will never be revealed, and that would be kind of cool too, right? Like I don't know if people would be frustrated by that, but it might be kind of a neat neat thing to say we don't know what it is but the idea that the the, the weapon of the morning is sort of the ark of the covenant right and right. and if the nazis get it they're going to use it to have a thousand year you know a thousand year uh, uh empire then what if that's the same in this case so i knew that that was going to be my theme i knew that we were going to be sort of half in sharn doing a bunch of sharn stuff and then the other half would be probably in the morning doing a bunch of like you know exploring the morning looking for stuff And I wrote out a a very brief outline of like, what are some cool places? I sort of went through the book and picked out like, what are the cool places that sort of want to drop in here and just kind of keep them handy. I don't know if I'm going to use them all. I don't know if that's where it's going to go, but I sort of have them handy. And I felt like I just wanted to have that list to make me feel a little bit more comfortable about running it. Right. I, I don't need it. I might throw it away, but just having that list makes me feel like I have a better handle on things, even if I really don't. Uh, and then I focus on the next game, right, which is my kind of my style. So it's been interesting to take the steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and apply them towards a homebrew campaign world. I don't think since I've – no, that's not true. I, I, I've run a couple of other campaign homebrew campaign adventures with the steps. I know they work for it because I've done it before, but it's a different style now. And it's, it's – you know, I, I, I was kind of – this idea of like, wow – I don't have anything in a book that I have to follow. Not that I really had to follow the books before, but it felt comfortable uh, yeah, having stuff in the books before. And now I don't and Now I don't have that. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that's been really interesting. And uh, where I started was, and so the, the other thing is, Sharn is a really cool place to run adventures because you can kind of do everything in Sharn, right? It's a huge city, mm-hmm. but... It it has lots of opportunities for dungeons. And it has lots of cool places to to explore, and certainly a lot of factions. And it's kind of hard not to overdo it
0: uh, you, by having
1: have, like lots of factions. Do you have the any of the third edition materials? I do, but part of I I kind of like sticking to what just came out with fifth, right? Okay. That like. I don't feel like I need more material. Like I feel like I've got enough material in the in the sourcebook to to cover things. Mm-hmm. But I felt like this also for for uh Saltmarsh or not yeah, for Saltmarsh too, right? For both for Saltmarsh and for Sword Coast stuff. It's like they you know Wizards of the Coast wrote those books so that new players would have a good base of what these places are like. And even though they have 40 years of history written about them, I don't have to stick to that 40 years, right? I can I can use just what they've put out. And, yeah, so I, I haven't yet felt like I need to dig deeper uh, than what's than what's in this book. And part of the reason is because they focused a lot of words on the places mm-hmm. that I'm going to be using. So, like, because I'm spending a fair a fair bit of it in Sharn, and they have a big section on Sharn, I don't need more Sharn. Like, I have it. I have the third edition Sharn book sitting right over there. Right. Uh, and I could dig into it, but, like, I don't, you know.
0: What, what about the, the fifth edition PDFs that were published Prior to the hardcover, there were two of them that Keith Baker worked on with uh, uh, Rudy uh, uh I have I,
1: I'm sure I have them, but I don't think I've looked at them. Okay, I haven't looked at them since I started running this. One of, I should. I know Keith Baker's supposed to be coming out with another big Eberron book.
0: Yeah, one of, and one of them has a collection of like short little uh, vignette adventures to, to start off with. Them. Well, there's a thing called encounters in Shard. Is that what you're talking about? Um, I don't remember what they call it. What it's called there. That uh, was the, the yeah, book. The book did sort of copy and paste large sections of those PDFs, but there's some stuff in the PDFs that aren't in the book. So,
1: yeah. So there was okay. Yeah. So there was there. there was sort of the precursor to this book. I forget what it was called. Um, Wayf- but it was the like the, um, the Wayfinder's Guide. Yeah. And I always thought I, I didn't really look through the Wayfinder's Guide to see what did the Wayfinder's Guide have that this didn't. I felt well, like this was a super th- set of. So there was so a I second
0: know. book that they put out called the the what was it Morgraves Miscellany. Um that has a little bit more okay. as well. And and again, some of it got put into this book. Some of the Wayfinders got, yeah, got put into this book. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think the hard part for me right now is making sure that I have good hooks. Like I know the I know this the the shining star that they're getting to. But it's sort of that problem of of like how much information to reveal, when, right? And and how do you? I'm not I'm not building a big mystery, so I don't need to have a lot of hidden stuff. But uh, you know, I I want to make sure that I've got all those like big seeds and nuggets that are that are taking the characters forward. Uh, a slight complication I have, which is self-inflicted, and and also I think <laughs> going to be kind of fun, is that I I did let the players choose the faction that they were part of. So I did use group factions. I offered about six factions to them. And uh-huh. one group picked House Kenneth as their group patron. And the other one picked uh, the Finders Guild. And so I'm I'm able to use the same material for both groups most of the time. But the motivation might be different. Right. And trying to remember that house and, and the motivation for the main, the main NPC that sort of uh, working, uh, I forget, because uncle, uncle Hadcliffe or something like that, who's a House Kenneth noble, who's also the uncle of one of the characters in, in my Wednesday game. And, uh, you know, he is a, like, I, I, you know, we think that House Kenneth might be responsible for the morning. And I'm not sure if we are or aren't, but I want to find out if we are, and I make sure it never happens again, right? And so that's his sort of motivation, and so he's kind of working with the characters who will sort of absorb that motivation hopefully, and then you know, use them as his agents to kind of discover what's going on and make sure it doesn't come back. Uh, and then the other group, the finders guild, their patron, uh, is, who's kind of like Sala from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, she, her motivation is, wow, there's a lot of different groups that are moving in Sharn and, and outside of Sharn. They all seem to be looking for a lot of interesting artifacts. I want to be there first. I want to get this stuff first. Right. And maybe we'll get rich but maybe we'll actually do a little bit of good as well. Right. And so the motivation is slightly different, which means the drive is different. Uh, And I think some of my scenes are going to be different because of the, the way the, the characters approach the situation is going to be different. Um, So it's all very new to me. And I, I started level one and I, they, they had some kind of fun, Sharn adventures. They started off with an airship that was about to blow up or a, uh, like a lightning rail car, like a, like a, elevated subway car that was going to get blown up it was going to get blown up by what they thought were um lord of blades extremists and then it turned out that they had been brainwashed by somebody else and so there's this like thread of like who would you know who's doing that like who's causing these problems inside charm uh, I think I'm going to bring in a Knight's uh, Dark Lanterns was one of the factions they could have chosen. And they were pretty close to choosing it in my Wednesday game, but they didn't. And now I'm going to bring like a King's Dark Lantern agent in as like a kind of a fun, um, you know, a fun villain, I think. But not one that you can just go and fight. It's going to be a, like, you know, this guy who's like, you know, he it, whatever action he takes is considered legal by the king. And his job is to make sure that whatever weapon is found is stopped or captured by the king. And so there's, you know, again, I'm like, I'm bringing in too many factions. I got Emerald Claw in there. I've got, um, you know, uh, Droam in there. I've got Nightstar or uh, King's Dark Lanterns in there. Uh, I've got the Orem in there. You know, I've got lots of different, uh, you know, all kinds of different factions that are coming in. And um, Who are the I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Uh, Emerald Claw, like they're so easy as Nazis, right? Right. And I think think the design is, it's really interesting that like you know, when you look at things like the Forgotten Realms, how much of the Forgotten Realms is based on like, you know, old fantasy literature and mythology and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then you look at Eberron and it's built around like the last 150 years of our lives right? right? Like it's the Cold War and it's World War II and it's you know all there's all these like you know the Aurum, it's like wow that's exactly like you know like like uh the mason's guild right True. so it's like there's there's all these like direct parallels to things that actually exist in our world that aren't mythology and that's that's kind of an interesting thing to to sort of grab onto you know the that knights you know king's dark lanterns that's james bond right like that's MI6 <laughs> And so you know they're 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 all sort of pop fiction sort of things, but it's interesting that the 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 fantasy of it is based on our fantasy, not on old mythology from hundreds oh, okay. of years ago. And that's that's you know, so I'm trying to maintain that, right That's like, okay, well, that's, that's 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 how it works, and that's that's how it goes. so yeah, i'm I'm having a really good time, but it is very different for me to not have any guideline that's steering me. Like I knew when I was playing salt marsh, I like, I know where this is headed. I have no idea where this is headed. Like I've got some ideas. I'm like, well, Blaine, the mono from the dark tower sounds really cool. I'm going to throw that in when they go into the Mornland. You know, <laughs> I just sort of grab in anything I can, you know? And, uh, and it's, it's weird to not have any sort of guidelines like that.
0: So how many sessions in are you now?
1: I think we're about three sessions in. Um, they, they had the whole sort of monitor, you know, the whole lightning rail incident. They met their group patron and got a home base, uh, each of them got a different kind of home base. That's not the alarm. And, um, each got their own different home base. And then they went down into the, into Fallen, which is in lower Dura in Sharn. And it's like a, uh, whole district of ruined temples. And they are, they were sent to the ruined temple of Oron the god of law and uh, lore to recover a tome called the tome of making and when they got there they found that a bunch of emerald claw guys and their hired mercenaries had already been there and they're trying to get it as well but they're being thwarted by living spells so the characters have to sort of get past the emerald claw fight the living spells or or somehow get around the living spells get so, the book and then get out so you
0: try like both groups were going into that like are you having yeah, both groups emerald, kind of they, run they got through the there and sword? emerald claw
1: was already there yeah. Oh, okay. uh, pretty close. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm sort of like repurposing the main thing. So even though they were sent for different reasons, like go, go get an ancient book from this library, you know, from this old, this old temple is an easy, you know, it's easy to connect that to both groups. Yeah. So, well, yeah. it's a,
0: it's a Kenneth book. So the Caneth group w- makes sense. They would want it. Yeah. And the finders, right. group, it's an art old
1: artifact. So of course It's they an old it. artifact. Yeah. And they, so when they get it, they're going to go, this is, I think is going to be fun is they're going to go, They're going to capture the book. Their patron is going to say, "Hey, we have a dinner party with this guy from the Orem that I want you to meet." And by the way, he—we're gonna—we sold him the book when you get it, but you're probably gonna have to steal it back. (laughs) Like we're gonna want it back. So while we're here at this party, case this joint because we're probably gonna have to come back here and get it. So you know,
0: here's here's the I think the obvious question, but um, it would be kind of nutty to do. Have you considered? having both groups existing in the same world
1: since the different factions. I, I, my life is complicated enough.
0: <laughs> um,
1: you know, I, uh, not really. Cause it's so, yeah, I know people who have done stuff like that Yeah, and it's, you know, they just tie themselves up and not,
0: Oh, Jeff at 16 would have been all
1: about that, but yeah. <laughs> I know, right. And they, they, I, I've had notes from people and I've had people, I think they've come into my Discord channel and, and they're like, you know, help me, I'm screwed. I have the, you know, and then they describe that and you're like, oh, Well, you, you, maybe you not. did it to yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah, kind of, right? And yeah, so I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that because um, I think the level of, I don't, A, I don't think either group really cares. It'd be one thing if I had players that were between both groups. Mm. Um, but no one would know, but me and yet the complexity would be too great. They might find out and I could kind of tell them, Hey, you know, that's actually the character but then they feel like half the story is missing because the other group is doing all this stuff. So no, I don't, I think I'm just going to run them independently and that way they can, they can kind of go each way. And I'm so used to running both groups through the same hardcover campaigns that it's not any trouble for me to do that and still have a really good time. And yet, still watch them diverge you right. know, based on what the characters. As,
0: as they often, uh, uh, like I, even as I asked the question, "Are you going to try to kind of run the same story for both of them?" It occurred to me that you always start with the same story for both groups, and it always ends up yes. going very
1: different directions anyway. By the right. end, so sometimes it's pretty close. Like tomb of annihilation, it wasn't that far. Well, now it's pretty far off. But then they both <laughs> end up at the tomb. They're both fighting the same beholder, right? So you know, yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 a, a fun and interesting time. I didn't get any chance to talk about what it's like to play over Discord, but uh yeah.
0: We're going to have there's, a- there's
1: other places, right? Talk about that.
0: Yeah, we're going to and we're going to have a whole episode about how this transition uh, has affected people yeah. and what we're doing in a couple weeks. So, people can always come back for that um cool. to hear what we're doing in different things. I've been using Discord um partially for my game as well, so.
1: Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Anyway, um, that's past I'm your done time. done, and I'm close to time. You're pretty close, yeah. Unless Sam had any, any questions.
2: No, not really. Um, I, how, how are your players liking Eberron? Oh, is, it, is it different for you, like, from the standard FR settings that you've been yes. running?
1: Yeah. and I'm trying to make it so, right? Like I, yeah. I try to describe the sort of high fantasy, and they're all playing weird ass races and classes <laughs> and dragon marks, right? They, right. they right. love all that. So, so yeah, they, yeah, they're, it, there's definitely a good feeling of difference for them, I think. And it's a little hard for me to make sure that that difference stays. Like, hey, they're still fighting bandits and thugs, you right. know. But you're like, ah, oh, but these guys have a green tattoo on their arm, that looks like an emerald claw, right? right. Like, right. oh, okay, they're still packed act-tacticking me. Yeah. I
0: found it interesting that you, your go-to inspiration was Indiana Jones for the pulp feel of Eberron because I, I think everybody I've ever talked to who's tried to find inspiration for pulp uh, storytelling in Eberron has gone to Indiana Jones. I've never known anybody sure. to pull inspiration anywhere else. It's
1: obvious Right. And you know that the adventure has done so. Like the campaign, like Keith Baker had that in mind when he wrote it. So sure. it's like... But there's why, a lot...
0: There's a lot yeah. to the pulp genre besides Indiana Jones, and yeah. arguably Indiana Jones is some yeah. of the later pulp, right? But, but that's what we know, right? I actually
1: wrote – yeah, I wrote a list out. Let's see if I've got it real quick here. Uh, I wrote a list out of the, um, the, the, the things that sort of grabbed me as movies that I wanted to watch, and it was Black Panther, Maltese Falcon, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Munich, Notorious, and both Blade Runners, Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. So I think that those are sort of movies that I want to inspire, you know, that I want to inspire this. And then there's definitely I'm I'm reading the Dark Tower series again by Stephen King. And I definitely want to throw some of that in there, too. That's some. some, He's got some really-
0: there's some dark movies in there. You got to throw in like a, a a Flash Gordon or something to brighten it up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Black Black Panther's is pretty, pretty. Uh, up that's there. True. It's, it's not very upbeat. Well,
0: I don't know about upbeat, but it's not its not as dark as, as some of the others. Excellent. All right. We're, we're going to uh, officially end uh, Mike's time. I don't know how far past we are your normal recording time here, but um, it's pretty close. Um, and I want to let people know before we move on to the next person that uh, if you want to support the Tome Show uh, and the things that we're doing, you can go shopping. Online, as many people are doing these days, if you go to uh, thetomeshow.com and click on the link to Amazon, you can do all of your Amazon shopping that you're doing while in quarantine anyway. Uh, And and then we get a few pennies uh, thrown our way, and I share that with all the people like Sam and Mike and everybody else who helps contribute to make the show possible. Uh, Or you can go shopping at DMs Guild if you're looking for more uh, D&D stuff. Uh, and I use that for when we do those PDF uh, review episodes. I try to help out the people who are joining us to, by, by getting them the PDFs that we're reviewing and stuff like that. So uh, that is a way you can support us. Go to thetomeshow.com and click on the links to Amazon or DMs Guild and help us. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so it is my turn. I'm starting my time. Um, I believe last time we talked... I had just finished uh, Dragon Heist. Does that sound familiar?
2: I think so, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, so I had just finished Dragon Heist, and I was talking about, like, what am I going to do with this sort of downtime between Dragon Heist and um, moving into Curse of Strahd? And I wanted to give them some downtime, and my original thought was, well, I'll just give them, like, you know, six months later, this other thing happens, Right. And as we started that process, and using I, I pulled up all the the downtime rules from Xanathar's Guide and every, everywhere else, and I'm like, we you know, what are you going to do? What do you what do you want to do? What's your what's your goal?" And I went through everybody, like, "What's what, what are you trying to accomplish in this time?" Um, and we all sort of they all sort of jotted down what they wanted to get done. I'm taking notes. They're telling me how they're what they're going to do with Troll Skull Manor, so we can just sort of automate that. How much money does it make? Roll some dice, figure it out. Um, and then I was going to you know jump forward six months and, and take care of a few things here and there uh and then that is not the way things ended up going at all <laughs> so um i i first of all one of the the characters so i made the three keys for um for the vault be three coins One of them was the coin from the Blue Alley Adventure that you may be familiar with that a lot of people incorporated into Dragon Heist. There was a a coin that was used in one of the riddles there. So they already had that one fine. The other one was specifically a coin from Ravenloft, sort of hinting at where we're headed. And then the third one was a soul coin hinting at where we're going in the next campaign someday. Um, But in order to get the soul coin, one of the players um went into the margrave forest which I've, I've ripped out of Kobold Press. Um and I've said it's it's part of barovia now, but it's been brought back by the mists and has been hanging outside of Waterdeep for about a month now. So they went in there and then I stole the um the vampire queen character from Grindelroot, uh that concept. And so and so she's running around in the Margrave, right? Uh, and and she's the only one who can sort of talk to the the forest, right? Uh, um, and so he actually went into the Margrave and made a deal with her to get a soul coin, found out where it was, and she's like, great, I'll give you the Ravenloft coin you need, but you need to go find the soul coin that it has gone missing from my collection that contains the soul of one of my consorts. Um, and so it turned out the Castelanters, of course, had it. They got the soul coin. They used it. But now the adventure's over – and he's got to return that soul coin uh, to her. And so there, So first, you know, very first session where I'm ho- hoping to just let's do some downtime stuff and, and jump forward six months. It turns into, well, first, before we do all that, I got to go back into the Margrave. And I'm like, well, you can't just wander into the mar- Margrave and have that happen off camera. Right. Uh, so I pulled um, from Tales of the Old Margrave. I pulled the. It's not really an adventure. It's more of a location with some characters and whatever um, called the Fingers of Durinde. Um, And I decided to use that as a means of returning the soul coin to the the Vampire Queen. Um, And part of it was because I'm thinking that when we eventually go into Curse of Strahd, the Margrave is going to go back to Barovia with them. And I might want them to go back in, in there. And there's a series of these... Uh, During day stories or locations, right, and they kind of connect together. So, I'm like, I'll just have that location be the location where they go to return the soul coin. Um, they meet some some fae creatures. Uh, you know, the the bard character I think fell three times in that session, um, but we were missing our primary blaster from the party that he was he was um, out sick that session. So, uh, I think that explained a lot of it. Um. And, and the, the person there at the Fingers of Durindae is like, oh, yeah, I was told by the queen to to collect that soul coin and take it to her for you. Um, you know, She doesn't just meet with people because you want to. Uh, so give that to me. I'll give, take it to her. And they were real suspicious, but it turned out she was legit. Uh, and she took the soul coin to the queen uh, and then came back and says, okay, that's done. Now it's time for dinner. And, of course, the thing about all these dark fantasy fairy people is that dinner is... The players, right? So, um, uh, and so, it tur- yeah, and so it turns into a big fight of, of stop these people from eating you. Uh, and then I decided, well, I kind of toyed with the idea of doing um, Isle of the Abbey I had mentioned, uh, and then Mike mentioned that Isle of the Abbey was the worst adventure in Ghost of Saltmarsh <laughs> uh, as a as a potential location when Barovia comes back to the Forgotten Realms, in my setting, that that would be kind of the location, the island would be the location of where Amber Temple would sort of reappear at. Um, But given that I was told that that was the worst adventure, I kind of skipped it and I went straight to, uh, what is it, the Fate of Tamarot or Tamarot's Fate or whatever it is? Fate. Yeah, Tamarot's Fate. And so uh, I started running that instead. And I had the... I had the Margrave Forest like refuse to let them exit in the direction of Waterdeep where they wanted to go and to kind of force them to the south. And they came out in Daggerford and Daggerford took over for the town from Tamarot's Fate. And they, they got hooked into this the, the weird things going on that's out of this hermitage sort of storyline right away. Um, and then the the pit of hatred is going to be the location where the Amber Temple returns to when they eventually merge after Curse of Strahd. Um, and so the, the idea is that the pit of hatred is not like a seal. What is it? I think in Tamarot's fate, it's, it's like a seal, a sealed portal to like the hells or the abyss or something in, in mine, it's an Amber seal. Um, that is the last, it's like the thinnest location between Barovia and, and the Forgotten Realms, right? That's, that's where the, the veiled the mist between them is, is the thinnest. Uh, and so, uh, which makes sense with all these undead coming up out of the, out of the water and all that. And so, um, we started the Tamarot's Fate um, in person. They explored most of the Hermitage. Um, they found the, the survivors, uh, and then we, then the next session, we switched over to playing on Roll20. Um, and they got the survivors... There's a little rowboat out back. They got the survivors on the rowboat, killed the, the troll that were there feeding on the dead bodies. Uh, the survivors were going to like row back, and they're like, well, but now we don't have a boat to get back ourselves. We're just going to stay the night and deal with whatever invasion of undead is coming our way. And so they were preparing and whatever. And in the preparations, they found um the stash of magic items that the the old wizard had up in his room including a folding boat so they could have left but at that point they i think they they didn't even think about leaving because they'd already put in so much effort into preparing their strategy for the fight right and and the fight actually ended up i think the fight ended up being in some ways better because i did it on roll 20 because I use the dynamic lighting feature that you get when you're a subscriber, uh, some of my players threw some money at me, so, so I did a subscription. And so you get this dynamic lighting feature, and the dynamic lighting feature, uh, you know, each player can only see what their character can see. Like it marks out their line of sight, it knows how far away they can see, and everything else is black. So I could have all the monsters on the map and I'd describe the noises they're making in other parts of the house, but they can't see. Like, they don't know where the bad guys are. So it's this horror-filled, like there's undead creeping around this, this place coming after you, but you don't know where they are or where they're coming from. Ha ha ha. And I think it worked really well. Um, and so we played, we played through that, uh, and then at the end of the last session, we've only played two online now, at the end of the last one, last Friday... Um, they got to sort of the, the crater or the crevice where the, the pit of hatred is. Um, and, and I sort of put that up on the screen. I, I, and they, they, tri- they explored, they triggered the encounter. I put all the monsters on the map and said, okay, we'll deal with that next time, right? Um, and then, and yeah, and so, so that has gone well. Um, and then my next plans are: um, I'm going to run uh, the gleam of, in the king's eye from Sly Flourish's Fantastic Adventures. Um, I've already con- yeah, I've already converted that over to roll twenty and, and set it up for dynamic lighting and everything as well. Um, I got to find some way to like make sure it's tough enough. How hard was that? Is setting it up for roll twenty. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe it took me half an hour to an hour. It didn't take long at all. Okay. Yeah. Um, And and it was mostly easy because I just did a search for the map and I found it off of your website. And I was just able to straight drag it from your website into um, Roll20. And it it pulled up and I added in my lines and, and threw in the tokens for the monsters and called it good. So, no, it didn't take very long at all. Uh, and it gives me some good downtime be- when I need to take a break from online teaching. I, just, I can pop over and, and do a few things on Roll20 and spend a few minutes here and there. So uh, I'm finding it going fairly quick. Uh, and then – so the, the idea is that I'm, I'm replacing the, the NPC from that adventure with um, – um, what's her name? Van Thamper from um, – Duke Van Thamper from uh, Baldur's Gate from Descend into Avernus. Uh, I'm sort of giving her a cameo. Like she, and I even put it in, like, I publish a, a weekly Waterdeep Wazoo newsletter for them to sort of read through, whatever. And I, I published in there, like, a month ago that, oh, Duke Van Thamper is visiting her, her Waterdeep estate just outside of the city and whatever. Uh, she's holding a tournament of adventurers and, and whatever. They didn't take that bait at all. They weren't interested in, <laughs> in participating in her tournament, no matter how many times times people came and, like, taunted them. Because they're like, no, we got more important stuff to do. That
2: reminds reminds me of when I was running uh, Tomb of Annihilation, and I for sure thought my my players were going to try to go for the like the dinosaur races. Right. And no matter how many like things pointed to, hey, you should go over to that part of town, they didn't want anything to do with it. They were like, nope, we're right. done. <laughs>
0: we're
1: well, not doing and, that. And so my strategy—you didn't—you this- didn't do it. I did. I'm like, you're on a dinosaur racing through town. Yeah. <laughs> go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't do that.
1: Because guess what? Then they'll ride a dinosaur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, no, like, you know.
0: I think I think it was an issue of priorities. Like, we have this time-sensitive task we need to do with returning the soul coin. We need to do that first. That's more important. So we're just going to ignore all of that. Um, so I think what's going to happen now is, okay, so Duke Van Thamper took the other adventuring party down into the basement of her estate that's been sealed off as, as per the adventure. Um, but they didn't, like... They didn't survive like three rooms. They were a bunch of chumps, right? And so now she goes hunting for the, this le- the legendary guest services that found the Vault of the Dragons. Uh, and and um, she's going to go down with them. And instead of the crown, she's seeking um, the holy shield that will eventually become the shield of the Hidden Lord from Descent into Avernus. I've got this, this other storyline idea in mind after Curse of Straw that they'll actually – They'll be the ones in this campaign that trap Gargoth into the shield. That Then the next campaign, they, they have the opportunity to gain that shield that they had created. I think it could be fun. Uh, but this is where I start to lay that foundation. And then after that, um, I'm going to run Trial of the Fang from Tales of the Old Margrave. It's sort of a dark fairy tale D&D version of Little Red Riding Hood. Like the Margrave has you know every every century or whatever the the whenever the Margrave decides to do it it has a contest between the wolves of the forest and the men of the forest, and whoever wins um you know takes dominance uh within the forest for the next until the next contest or whatever uh, and so the would be king of the King of wolves is already there at at the old crone's house, which is sort of this this trope right it's sort of like uh the Baba Yaga sort of character, this old fortune telling crone, which fits in really well to the Curse of Strahd type of story. Who, that, you know, that's that's grandmother, right? And and the would be king of the wolves uh, is basically a, a anthropomorphic sort of wolf character that has this special ability to swallow whole, so that you know it can swallow people whole, and that you can cut a Little Red Riding Hood and Grandma out of the belly of the wolf and, and whatever. So I'm gonna run that next and on their way back from the Margrave there, the mists are gonna roll in and the entire forest is going to be taken to Barovia with the players inside. So there's no water deep for them to get back to, and they wander into the gates of Barovia and, and then we start Christmas stride. That's my that's my plan. For the next I don't know, that's probably a good six or seven sessions. Things move a little slower running it online <laughs> than it does in person. So, mm-hmm. I I would have thought we were done would have been done with Tamarot's fate by now if we were in person. Um, but last session, you know, we played I don't know, 5 hours, 6 hours and it was almost entirely just that uh, horde of undead attacking the island was was most of that time. But they're having fun. Right. I did have a couple of players recently reach out to me uh, and for different reasons – and this might be an area where you can uh, give me some, some advice or some things to chew on uh, – two players reached out with some concern about feeling like their characters are ineffective uh, but in different ways. So I have the uh, dwarven barbarian character who talks about how he feels ineffective out of, out of combat. Like in combat, he feels fine, but like mm. he doesn't feel like he's connected much to the story or the out-of-combat sort of you know, diplomacy or intimidation pieces that you could do for the exploration and, and, and um, that kind of stuff. And then the other player feels less effective, and it's the, the player that I mentioned that plays the bard, uh, who dropped three times in one session um, uh, as we went into the margrave. She feels ineffective um, in combat. I don't know that I feel like she is ineffective in combat, but because the party was less optimal in that session uh, and she's occasionally dropped before, she feels ineffective for those reasons. And so that's um, valid. I'm I'm trying to give her some options. She's recently expressed interest in potential, you know, lichdom someday for her character. Um, And there happens to be one of the dark powers in Ravenloft who is a dark power of liches, right? Um, and so when they were at this – at the, the the Pit of Hate, which is you know the thinnest area between Barovia and the Forgotten Realms, I had uh, that dark power sort of reach out to her and offer her uh, a Pact of the Undying Warlock Pact, uh, which she seems interested in in terms of upping her combat effectiveness as well, being able to throw out those Eldritch Blasts and whatever um, I think might help her. But she's also like – I would argue that character – drives more of the story than anything else which i think is connected to the other player who feels like a lot of the story isn't driven by his character because there's you know these one or two other characters that really drive a lot of it Uh, and and honestly i'm a little gun shy with his character anyway because he started off a character i integrated a lot of story into his character um really invested heavily in, in integrating his character into the story and just as I did so, he decided he didn't want to play the character anymore and switch characters. And so now I'm like, yeah, but do I want to go through all that again with him? Like, he's he's concerned that he's not, you know, effective out of, out of combat, but I'm like, yeah, but like last time I built a lot around you, you, you dropped it on me and now I, we've just got these loose threads hanging out. So I'm not sure. Those are my two situations I'd like some thoughts on. Hmm.
2: So uh, I play a bard in a game that I'm – a rare game that I'm a player in. I play a bard. We play once a month, and um, we're fourth level. And I am thinking of multi-classing because my bard feels so weak. Um, but I think I realize what it is uh, is that the bard is a sort of kind of squishy character, right? Like I am, I am excellent in – situations where I have to intimidate or, you know, diplomacy eyes someone right, persuade them or whatever. Uh, but uh, because my bonus is so high, right. uh, and I can be boisterous and play that character really well, like that, and so that works. But what I've noticed is what what it really comes down to is I decided not to multiclass the last time we leveled up because I thought, well, let me give this let me give this thing one or two more levels, and I'll take the the uh, the attribute increase, you know, whatever, and we'll see what happens. Uh, and because it's sort of a weaker martial combatant but also the spells are uh this the the type of character the type of bard i decided to play uh has spells that that are not super duper powerful right like i just i made a suboptimal kind of character and i'm okay with that but what i realized is because i did that if i have a, a session where the dice rolls really aren't going my way i really feel it Hmm. Um whereas the other characters their dice rolls might not go their way but you know they still get in a couple of really nice You know, moves or whatever. Uh, Whereas my character, which is relatively suboptimal, doesn't. And I so in it anyway. My point kind of is sometimes it's not even really the build; it's the fact that the build is really only slightly less powerful, Mm -hmm. or the way that the player is playing it is slightly less powerful. But when the dice go bad, it's really noticeable Mm -hmm. for those slightly weaker characters. Because then, you know, after I had I talked to my DM about. You know, feeling like my character was weak and maybe multiclassing, and then the very next session I kicked butt all over the place, right? right? Like I cast spells at exactly the right time. I had exactly what was needed, and it was like the perfect session for my particular PC. And so it, it I, I don't know. I, I feel like um, sometimes it's a perception more than a reality, right? Right.
0: Well, yeah, because so she's throwing out shatters and stuff and doing crazy. Like she. What was it? The salvage operation. She's the one who sank that ship by like shattering the hull out of the bottom of the boat. and She's taken out uh, undead hordes in, in the last fight like crazy with the, with these spells. I think part of the issue is that she had a vision for her character that was that she was making a living as a performer and so she went barred. But she's not really a typical bard. Like she's not the boisterous, charismatic type of character. She's a tiefling who was raised in dis and has been exiled and abandoned in the Forgotten Realms and is just really broody uh, and all. Of, like so, she's got. She can turn the charisma. On. She's a manipulator, right? And she took the the what was it College of Shadows or Whispers College of Whispers, uh, which fits that, right? So she's the broody, manipulative sort of uh, bard. She's not the typical sort of... That's really
2: funny because my my bard is a College of Whispers bard, too. Yeah. So... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, So, yeah, she's got a very different take on the bard that is not necessarily going to be the face of the party all the time, even though she has the skills to do it. And she also forgets all the time that she can do things like bardic inspiration or counter charm and all that. Like, she just... Doesn't think of it because that's not the kind of character she's playing or that she feels like, I you know, mean, we I mean. describe her bardic inspiration as, you know, she just slaps someone on the back and says, hey, buck up, you know, and that's it. <laughs> so.
2: Right. So maybe that's the answer is, you know, reskin some of the sort of more fluffy things that she can do, like reframe those that in a way that more fits her conception of Mm -hmm. the character, that way she feels more effective because she's more likely to do those things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing is to maybe sit down with her and actually talk about it and just say like, well, let's, let's conceive of this particular power in a way that, that actually fits what you want your character to be able to do. um, But mechanically keeps the same, you know, the same effect, right? The same mechanical effect, but yet, you know, let's make it so that it fits your character's regime, right? Your, your schema, right? And then at least she'll feel like she can use things and she can describe things and actually bring some narrative to what her character's doing um, in a way that makes her feel good about her. You know, she's not having to be forced to do something that mechanically might be effective, but doesn't really fit her conception of the character. Right. So then she's less likely to use it if it doesn't fit her conception of the character, which I totally get. That's that's an issue. Yeah. Sounds more like she's a she has a performer background, but maybe should have had a different a different maybe. class. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah
0: maybe.
1: Mike, nothing. No, I, I think you guys covered it pretty well. I don't have any. I don't have anything to really to add.
0: What, what about my dwarven barbarian who doesn't feel effective or connected to the story outside of combat?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know that. I, I always think it's useful. So when I when I think about building a character for D and D, I think that um, I think we we sometimes have an over an over a bigger focus on combat effectiveness than others, and I think trying to say like looking at I, we also we also tend to pick skill proficiencies that match our attributes so that we can kind of max out those attributes. When it could be more you you know it could be better to pick skill proficiencies to slightly boost ones where our attributes don't fit. So I think it's always important to look at a character and say, what is this character going to do in role-playing scenes? What is this character going to do in uh, exploration scenes? It's very easy to say, what are they going to do in combat? Most sure. of the time, you you don't forget that one. But trying to say, like, what are, what are the capabilities I have that will work well in these kinds of scenes? And then most of it is kind of just picking a skill, but sometimes it's a background. You know, you can change your background. Quite a bit, and, right. and be you know antithetical to your class with your background.
0: That's good advice for building a character, but I already have a character in my game. <laughs> what do I do with it now?
1: As a, you have a character.
0: No, no this player has a character in my game. Player
1: has a character that yeah. that feels like he's not contributing much outside of combat. You can so. let him respec. You know, like like you could say like, hey, just you know, it's it's cool. Move your stuff around, right? You <laughs> know, like. Okay. I've I've always let my players shift stuff around when they're sure. not happy. If you know, mechanically, I don't I never really worry. I, I barely you know I would kind of like them to keep the same race, but if they want to switch a class, they can. Yeah, no, well, and I've I've been uh, all the
0: about other one that is too. items.
1: What are what are some interesting items that can that can change? You know that can that can mm-hmm. get them into other situations. Uh, you know, there's that. I mean, not that it's great for a barbarian, but there's that crazy shield that gives you like you know big bonuses to perception um i forget what it's called um you know weapons of warning do give you kind of interesting things uh there's all kinds of you know a, a gem of seeing that lets them get they're they're the one that can see through illusions so i think kind of going through and finding item and you can make up items right you don't have to go right. with the ones that are in the book you can make up items that that do it uh like you know the what is it circlet of brilliance what's the circlet of intellect well, barbarian puts it on and suddenly has an int of 19. Yeah, that can that can do some interesting things,
2: Jeff. So let me ask a question. So you talk to the player, right? So what is it that he or she wants their character to do that they feel like they can't do right now?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, he wasn't he wasn't super forthcoming or clear. The only thing he mentioned is like, you know, I try to do things outside of combat and they just don't they're just not very effective. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I seldom get an opportunity to use that in t- to, to do like intimidation and whatever and, and what have you and I'm like well some of that is the choices that you're making right um, and I can try as the DM to, to sort of poke you every now and then and be like hey do you want to do this with your character you know and try to get him used to that but, but like so when he talks about not being super effective he has the ability to, to cast uh, was speak with animals you know, so many times per day or whatever it is. And he keeps doing it like, oh, are there any birds flying around? I can't speak with animals. Okay, but that doesn't mean that they're your friends or they're going to come and hang out with you all the time, right? You still have to, like, coax them down and get information, you know, and whatever, right? Just because you can talk to them doesn't mean that that that's going to be always useful. Now, he did find some use for it, actually, the session before we had this conversation. In in Tamarot's Fate, you you have the chance to meet the the old wizard's... uh, decrepit seagull uh familiar so this is a a, an animal who's more likely to hang out and talk to him and whatever and so that speak with animals came in really useful at that point he was able to translate for the party and all of that um i think part of it is everybody's character everybody who built a everybody's character was built with sort of this they built their characters with a story that i've sort of built more of the campaign around or was built around the campaign and his story was uh you know, I ran around and adventured a lot because I want to be f- famous and, and well-known and, and a big big deal hero guy. Like, yeah, well, that's not... Like, there's not a ton for me to build off of there. Uh, I, I leaned in heavily uh, with his, a connection be- for him with the Lord's Alliance uh, as a faction um, because he's from Gontalgrim and, and that was something I could sort of lean on. Uh, and that, I thought, went fairly well, but um, he's the only member of the Lord's Alliance, so if he's doing that stuff he's off kind of on his own doing stuff and the rest of the party's not connected to it and involved and so that's fairly limited um i don't know there's a degree to which like i get what he's saying and there's a degree to which um you know i try to put threads out there and he just doesn't always bite so to speak right um and i'm hoping that maybe if i put those threads, maybe he's not recognizing that those those things are in front of him those opportunities are in front of him and i'm Hoping that maybe I can just sort of poke him and prod him and point them out when they're there and when he has those opportunities, um, and see if that helps. I mean, I can always do what I can do and and come back and check back in with you later, right? Um, he didn't have like I told him like he had this conversation with me. I'm like, okay, I'm I, I, I'm going to bear this in mind. We're going to work on some things. I'm going to do some things, whatever. Um, but like just heads up, the next session is largely going to be. A big combat with a horde of undead invading the island, right? So we're not going to get to do it right away because that's not where we're at in the in the in the story. So we'll see how it goes. I can I can check back in with you in a month and give you an update on on how it's going. So we'll see. And maybe and maybe I'll um I'll look for opportunities to tie him in. You know, maybe I'll have Duke Van Thamper specifically ask him to come and help uh, when I run. Uh, Was it the, the the gleam in the king's eye? Uh, you know, that kind of stuff, because that's some of the things that we did early on to introduce him to the party, was he was, he's this famous strongman dwarf from Gontelgram or whatever, so we could lean on that a little bit. Alright, but I have talked way too much. Uh, I do want to take a moment to, to thank our patrons. Another way you can support the show is by being a patron at patreon.com slash the tome show. No, is that right? Patreon.com slash the tome. Man. Um... So patreon.com slash the tome is a way that you can support us directly. Uh, we have uh, we have people patrons who who uh, help us out with just a dollar a month. We have patrons that help us out for $5 a month. Um, in fact, we have a new patron. Uh, we have a couple of new patrons since the last time I, I read off the patrons. Uh, Carl... Haleperin, Perrin, uh, I think I pronounced that right, is a new patron, as is Hyperlexic. I recognize the name from Twitter. I don't know. Um, that's the name they used. So that's the name I got. Uh, and our, other than that, our more recent, uh, just a month or so ago, ago now, patron is Merrick uh, Blackman, who many people from the internets know. Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelche, and Doug Palmer uh, are also patrons for us. All right. Uh, Mike is going to disappear soon and turn into a pumpkin. So we are going to start Sam's time. Thank you for all of our patrons and go support us, patreon.com slash the tone. So Sam, you have 15 minutes. Go. And if you have questions, apparently ask them now because Mike's going to disappear.
2: <laughs> okay. So I, I have a very quick intro. So in my last session of my, of my main game, uh, I we had a massive battle. The, uh, the duel that was supposed to happen got postponed because uh, some – uh, some scions, deep scions, these guys, in case you are unfamiliar with them. They're from those guys. Science. Yeah, they're they're also uh in the uh the, the salt marsh book. Um they uh started attacking uh the pirate ship that uh that the the duelist who was who was trying to, uh, to to challenge one of the PCs to a duel. Uh, and so they went to, to help them because they had recently found out that this ship was no longer a... The party found out that th- this particular ship was actually trying to defect from the pirate fleet. So the duel sort of came off the table, but then right after that revelation, they started getting attacked. So the party had a massive battle with uh, several deep scions and... Um, a couple of, of my homebrew creatures called Storm Wyverns or Wyverns, depending on your preference there, uh, which are some pretty um, pretty powerful creatures. Uh, so here's the thing. They're level 10. And so we had this enormous battle on a ship with two Storm Wyverns and uh, eight Deep Scions. And on the side of the party was uh, several uh, Blue Goblin crewmen from the pirate ship and then also the hybrid shark. Uh, who had previously challenged them to a duel, who's the captain of that ship. So um here's what I want to talk about. Sharkface? Yeah, Sharkface. Uh so <laughs> here's what I want to talk about. I am as my players as my players' PCs go up in level, I am becoming ever more so disillusioned with the challenge rating system and the encounter building system that is that is printed in any of the Watsi products, uh, including the Xanathar's uh, revised version, and including the DMG and uh, and and all of that stuff, um, because I I had uh, four. I, I, eight, eight Deep Scions were attacking the ship, but I had four of them only engaging the party. My party is four PCs in their 10th level. So four Deep Scions and two Storm Wyverns. Uh, the Storm Wyverns are uh, CR7, so they're 2,900 XP each. And the Deep Scions are CR3, so they're 700 XP each. So four Deep Scions and two Storm Wyverns is supposed to be 11,400 experience. Uh, times two because there's six combatants. So that should be 17,200 XP worth of budget. That should be an extremely deadly combat for four-tenth-level uh, creatures. And it was very challenging. Don't get me wrong. One of the PCs almost went down. Um, but two well, of the PCs... Sorry, what was the,
1: what was the other monster besides Deep Scions? Uh,
2: a Storm Wyvern.
1: Oh, they're, your own thing. And do you have I a challenge for
2: those? Two of them. They they basically follow the seven. stats of the coral drake from uh from the uh, from the uh, from from one of the cobalt press books. What's I the CR uh, seven? Okay, and there there were two it's of them. High. Yeah, so two sevens and uh, four CR threes. Plus, there were actually there actually were four other of those CR threes around. But the, uh, the other groups were engaging with them. So I mean that that should be such a deadly encounter, right? Um, and I, I was actually... I, well, they're, you said they're level 10? They're level 10, yes. And that's a deadly encounter? Yeah, yeah. C- according to the DMG, right?
1: Yeah, so my, it, head, well, my head math tells me it's a deadly encounter too.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, uh, I don't remember what page this is on. I believe,
0: I believe you. I've literally never used any of that stuff to formulate an encounter once. So so I don't know what, the, what I believe you. Well,
2: here's why I do. I, I don't do it because I need it to... I, I basically do it as a check, right? I do it to check myself to make sure I'm not, I'm not completely, you know, uh, just throwing something that is so out of bounds that it, if they all die and there's a TPK, they're gonna say, duh, Sam? You know, of course that was, you know." You know, I'm trying to be thoughtful about it. I'm not using it as a hard and fast rule, but I do it to check myself. I create the encounter as appropriate for the situation. And then I go back and I say, well, what kind of encounter is this going to be? Because when I see that it's going to be super duper deadly, I think to myself, okay, I have to make sure that I build things into this setup of this encounter that will allow the party to be able to respond and get away if they need to, right? If they look, if it's so deadly they have to retreat, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with throwing something really deadly at my players. not that i think everything should be balanced and and whatever but i need to make sure that uh, narratively they have that ability to leave they, they're they not just stuck you know on a on a tugboat right and and just being completely inundated with creatures right so so that's why i look at those numbers not be, but the the thing is that they are so wrong <laughs> they're so off they just don't they just don't work um and so I, I just want to—I I mean, I, I don't know. I know Mike, you know that even uh, when Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, right? I mean, oh. we had this huge conversation about you know how underpowered those creatures are, and you know uh, uh, specifically who is it? What is it? Hutigen, right? He is just so—and—and yeah. and the uh, the eladrin or or whatever. The Winter eladrin.
1: You know, yeah, with the, sad, with the sad bow.
2: Yeah, they're just so underpowered for for the ratings and um and that I think is part of the reason why some of some of these CR numbers they just don't match up. So ultimately, here's why I bring this up because um I'm also like in the middle of of writing a couple of adventures with a couple of other co-writers and they're very young and they and they're young players, they've never written anything and they're trying to create monsters and they're asking me questions like, "Well, how do I build an appropriate monster? Like, how do I?" And so I'm kind of trying to teach them how to learn how to get a feel for it right because ultimately it's really a art more than science because none of these numbers mean anything really ultimately right like maybe at low levels you can count on some of those interactions between cr and party level and, and power but after about i don't know fifth fifth level like it yeah, doesn't, it's right around there sixth yeah. or seventh level yeah the, it's just, the, yeah.
1: The, the wheels come off yeah, yeah.
2: So, so I don't know, but I, so, so there's that on the table to talk about, and then there's a question from Lynn Pelchier, who, who is a patron of ours and who is a friend of ours on Twitter and all that. Here's the question: He says, he says, uh, regarding revealing a villain's backstory, what are some of the best practices in revealing a villain's motivations, especially if there is a mystery and a potential plot twist built around it? Um, I'm not going to say what he says about his villain in his current game because I don't want to spoil something for someone. Uh, But basically, how do you get around just having a villain who all of a sudden – has to monologue sort of at the end because the party never really got a chance to learn their backstory. So what he's looking for are, are tips and tricks into how to work that in. So what do you guys got for it?
0: I got, well, I got some. We've, we've got seven minutes. Do we, what should those issues do we want to talk about first? Your encounter building issues or, or the revealing of the villain? Uh, I, issues?
2: I think, I think that the conversation can flow. I think, uh, you know, I, but Mike has to leave soon. So I just wanted to get that question out there. Cause I know Mike has some thoughts about it. So,
0: so Mike, you've got those
1: two topics. Well, We'll let you talk first. Yeah, let me talk about the villain one because I think yeah. So I've written. Let me talk about encounter building really quick, which is like I have about four thousand articles on Sly Flourish writing yeah, about yeah. encounter building. Yeah. So feel free to hit any of those. Yeah, um yeah. And I've tried. I man, encounter building has been something I focused on for like five years. I've done a whole lot of thoughts on it. I have got really easy trick for encounter building that doesn't necessarily get you any better, but the math is a lot easier, and it gives you that kind of gauge. It's basically the same gauge though. Anyway, uh, another time. Uh, the other one about villains is really interesting, and I, I I I have a couple of thoughts. I played a game called Assassin's Creed Odyssey recently, and one of the interesting things about Assassin's Creed Odyssey is you hunt cultists. So you have this 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 group of cultists that you're trying to hunt throughout throughout the entire game, and you you learn about them. You hunt them down by learning secrets about them as you go, and the secret might just tell you one clue about who they are. So it says, like, this cultist is in Athens. This cultist is male. This cultist has been there for some time. You know, this, this cultist uh, likes, you know, decadence. And you're slowly, like, narrowing down these vi- different variables until eventually you get enough clues that you're able to identify who the cultist is and then hunt them down and kill them. And uh, isn't that a Carmen Sandiego? It, maybe. I don't know. But it was, it was, it was fun for killing cultists. So um, cool. I think so. I, I you know, the nice thing is I, I was doing that with the villain in Storm in um, Ghost of Saltmarsh where I didn't want to have them on camera because I knew if they were on camera that the players would sniff them out immediately Uh, So I had this, this person that was in the background running things and the players learned more about this person as they went. They learned that there's, it's somebody who's been in salt marsh for years and it's somebody that isn't in a political position and it's, you know, somebody who is close to somebody who is in a political position and it's, uh, you know, this person is, is a, a man and human, you know, so they were slowly picking up clues and then they would start to go around town trying to get these clues. And then they figured, oh my God, it's. You know, Anders Solmars Butler is the the head of the Scarlet Brotherhood in in Saltmarsh. So it was kind of a fun way of them knowing that this person is out there and slowly learning things about them as they went. And you can have so I, I, you know, I I fall back to secrets and clues a lot in in my game prep, which is, you know, I'll write a bunch of one line bits of lore. And in this case, it could be a bunch of bits of lore about a villain. Uh, things that they did and histories that they have and allies that they have and you drop them all over the place so that you know it could be that they overhear about somebody talking about them in a bar or they uh you know they they get they get it while beating up a you know a hireling who says oh you know i'd rather be beat up than you and then have to deal with that guy boy one time he did you know these three things and so you can sort of seed out all the background stuff on your villains early. Uh, I mean some of some of it is really dirt cheap. So I've got a I've got a uh, villain in my Eberron game called Lord Crash. And Lord Crash is a bone knight from uh, uh, the Emerald Claw, and he's the head of the Emerald Claw group that is hunting down these artifacts, and he's not gonna be on screen until they're ready to fight him, but they're gonna hear about him a lot, right? There's that this guy that came into town and he's you know, he went into the lower Dura and he murdered a bunch of people. And now, you know, we don't know where he is, but he'd, he'd rather be with the dead than with the living. And he's out in the crypts, right? And they're going to learn all these little bits of information about this guy as they go until one day they'll actually face him. Like, oh, so your lord Crash, And then they'll kill him in one round with a banish, you know, or whatever. So, um, yeah, so that that's... I think I think just like listing all of these interesting characteristics of the villain and then every session throwing out a couple of them, finding finding places to put right. them. I think that's a, an interesting way to kind of spell out a, vi- a villain before you before you uh, reveal them.
0: Well, and I find that's to be I find that to be good advice generally, uh, whether it be about your villains or the mystery of
1: the campaign or whatever, like get it out. Yeah, don't earlier don't hold on to your you cards. Said. You know, don't keep your cards close. Like players, this is my new motto. Like players are are having trouble understanding the story half the time, Mm -hmm. so just hurl information at them. Don't you know? Just throw it. B-O-B- yeah, my motto
2: is usually if you if you're being subtle, your players aren't going to get it at all. If you think you're not being subtle, they're still probably not getting it. Right. You have to be really direct. Yeah. If there's something that they need to know, they need to have it shoved in their face. You can try to be subtle at first, but there has to be a point where you put it in their face because otherwise they're not going to they're not They're Some of them won't catch it.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Well, and I find – like I almost think of it as if I'm thinking about do I reveal this background bit bit of information or this secret or whatever, like I ask myself, would it be fun to reveal this information now? Not would it be more fun to save it till later, right? Would it be fun to reveal it now? I am creative. I've been doing this a while. I will come up with more fun things to introduce and to reveal later, right? right? But if it's fun to reveal it now – Let's have fun now and worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, right. right? Right. So, so if revealing this information, if it's interesting, do it, uh, and don't hang on to it. And I think you know. And I've been the same DM for for years, where I, like I, I have like I want to feed it out slowly over time. But then by the time I get to the big reveal, like they missed all the steps along the way, or they've forgotten about them, and it just doesn't matter to them anymore. So now it's like, yeah. No, I want to. I want to at least touch on this. You know, uh, when I was running my last campaign, the post-apocalyptic fantasy Earth one, where I mashed everything up, right? I made it a point to to discuss every storyline, every sort of uh, eventual thing that needed to unfold. Discuss each one in every session, in some way, shape, or form. Refer to something. Reveal something. Whatever. Everything gets gets touched on every session. And slowly it, it builds up and reveals, and, and I come up with more stuff later that if I need or run out of secrets to to reveal.
2: Like in in my D anD D brief game right now, there are so many things I've thrown at them that are that are that feel mysterious to them because they don't necessarily have all the connecting pieces. And it's totally okay if they forget or miss half of those because I'm constantly throwing things. In fact, I've so I've thrown so many things at them so far that. They're like, what the F? Like, we have no clue how some of these things relate to anything that we've been doing, but we know that they probably will somehow, right? that like some of them are not red herrings. So we have to assume they're all not red herrings until we know for sure. And so we know that there are, there are just a ton of things and it's a WTF. Like they have some things get revealed and they're like, we have no, where did that come from? But then as things go on later, because I'm just flowing freely with, Oh yeah. Oh, you're asking that person about this. Oh, you found this item. Like, Oh, anything they find that that has the possibility to have an inscription on it guess what it's got a freaking inscription on it anything <laughs> they any any parchment they find with anything right. written on it guess what it's got something right it's got something Right. And and it will all come together. And, you know, if I forget to connect dots later, you know what often happens because I've been so in your face about here's all this weird clues? They start talking about it. And I remember, oh, yeah, I, remember I did mention that thing. I forgot to add it in here. But I'll, uh-huh. I'll take care of it uh-huh. later, right? Like just somehow it got, you know. And so just – just give it to them just give them you don't have to give it to them all at once but you got to give them something every single session right. they need to hear either it's a rumor or they they see something they hear some bard you know or town crier just saying something about it and even if they don't know details they're now hearing this villain's name oh oh i think i heard about that A town crier two weeks ago said something about you know there's a bounty you know the duke has a bounty on you know this person's head oh we didn't even it was meaningless to us back then cuz we didn't know who that person is But now we have these other two clues that connect their name or their profession or their position to it, right? And now that's how – but you can't work that stuff in if you hold it all back until they really know what to look for because guess what? The players never know what to look for. Right. They don't they have no they have no clue. And so here's the thing is that for me, one of the reasons why I like being a player, it's actually not because I like being a player. I like being a DM more than being a player. But being a player reminds me what it's like and reminds me why I have these sort of Little tidbits that I always say, like you know, if you think you're being, you know, if you if you're not being direct with them, it's going over their head. They're not because it's true. When I'm a player too, if my DM's trying right. to be more vague, it's suddenly like, oh, I I didn't catch that at all, or I have no reason to pay attention to that at all because I don't understand how it matches yet because it's not in my face enough. And I'm a I've been playing for decades, and I've been DMing for decades, right. and I still don't catch the clues. <laughs> because when you're a dm you already have it all there or at least a lot of it and the players have nothing you have to assume the players have nothing so that's that's the thing that's that's one of the reasons i like playing um also because it reminds me of of what it's like so
0: right so so i have uh two strategies that i'm going to be trying in my uh when we get to the cursed Strahd section of my campaign um, one of which I was inspired by – I think it was maybe off-camera I mentioned um, Judd Carlman, formerly of Sons of Kryos and more recently uh, podcasting uh, Daydreaming About Dragons. Um, In one of his podcasts, I don't know, a few months ago, he mentioned – I don't remember what it was, some video game. But the idea behind the – one of the things that happens in the video game this little sort of almost Easter egg-like thing is that you run into little bits of like lore. Here's a, here's a bit of – here's a, a plaque about this person or here's a scrap of parchment, sort of the thing, kind of thing you mentioned before, right? And you build up this lore, but if you get like X number of pieces of lore, then like it unlocks a quest or whatever, right? And I'm like, I could totally do that to great effect, In Curse of Strahd, like every town they go to, every location they go to, there's going to be like an old book or a plaque on a statue or whatever. And it's going to reveal the history of Barovia and the dark powers themselves. And when they've they've collected a certain amount of lore, then I will reveal to them the location of the Amber Temple. Right? Uh, and so I think that would work re- – That's gonna, I hope that that's going to work really well from what I'm hoping to do in my campaign if I remember to do it. I came up with all the lore bits, but we're sessions and sessions, months away from, from getting there. So who knows if I'll remember it at the time. Um, and then the other thing uh, – and I actually reviewed a product uh, in a recent uh, PDF review episode. I don't know if you've gotten around to e- editing it yet.
2: Now it's, um, it's the next one that's going to go. I the
0: think. next one on the yeah. list. So so I reviewed a product called the Interactive Tome of Strahd. So the Tome of Strahd in Curse of Strahd, it's, it's one of the, the items that you find from the card reading that tells you the location, whatever. But then you find it, it's basically just like, here's a one-page handout of exposition that gives you the background of who Strahd is and how he get, came to be the way he is, right? And that's fine, but it's not super interesting. Um, but I found this interactive Tome of Strahd on um, DM's Guild, and the idea behind it is that, though no, the Tome of Strahd actually has abilities. Like, it, it grants uh, rituals to the, the attuned person, but you can only get access to a ritual after you've sort of deciphered one of the chapters. And every time you decipher a chapter, it actually pulls the entire party into the book and then you live through one of the memories Ah. of Strahd going from when he was like 10 all the way up to a few years ago when he was destroying, you know, the town of of, uh, Brezev or whatever, right? And so you get to like all these locations and history that you learn about in Barovay, you get to actually like play it out as a little one shot. Uh, and nice. that's, that's going to be a really neat way, I think, to explore the villain. Like they, they will know so much about Strahd. They might actually sympathize a little bit when they see, you know, how he got to be the way he is and whatever. Um, you, start, you stop sympathizing with him pretty quick, I think, because, you <laughs> know, he does horrible things pretty, right. you know, about halfway through. Little kid Strahd, you kind of feel bad about him, right? He, <laughs> you know, the way his parents treat him, all that kind of stuff. But, you know. By the time arena is getting married and, and he turns to the Dark Powers and becomes a vampire, ah, no, he could have played that differently. Right. He chose to be a jerk. But but that's another trick I, um, I'm going to use there. And I I think if with the right type of villain and the right type of story, could be replicated in other places. Like find some way to have them go back and relive these little vignettes right. of the villain's past. Right. Uh, so, so then it's not just, you know, you learn a bit, it's yeah. you actually live it.
2: Yeah, so that's like so. In my in my D and D brief game, I the players have this this artifact now called the Book of Proofs, and the Book of Proofs is is a oh, book. See, I'm, I'm behind. Yeah, so so the so the Book of Proofs is you open the book, and actually the pages are an extra dimensional space. So if you have on like a true sight goggles or something, when you open the book, all you see is the book binding. You don't see the pages because they're not there. They're somewhere mm. else, right? And if you look at it, you see like the ethereal plane, right? Um, but right. The, but when you when you don't have like true sight goggles, it just looks like a big thick book with pages, and the edges of the pages writhe like they're worms or something, right? If you write a statement in the book, what happens is that the book will take some time, and it will write out the proof of whether that statement is true or false, and it will come, it'll write it out. Write all It'll write all of the different equations and everything it needs to. And then it will end with a sentence. And the sentence will either be, uh, this statement is true – or this statement is false, or this statement cannot be evaluated. Right, and so uh,
0: is it is it connected to all the numbers that constantly show up in your campaign? No, those are uh,
2: coordinates for those are coordinates for services. Yeah, for portals. Yeah. So, um, so, so they if you write a statement in this book. So here's the thing that they came up with, though, right? So they're going to write the statement, and then what happens is you can leave the book alone, and it'll it'll take hours to work out. Right, whatever this. Whatever the, whether it's true or false. But then it tells, because it tells you how it knows whether it's true or false, my players are now convinced that if they ask the right question and then they look at the proof that the, that whatever the being is that's writing in the book, they don't really know what's creating the proof, right? But whatever that is, if they look at it, they can now learn how what the chain of events are that have to happen to make that statement true, right? So they can ask something like, uh, you know, what caused the sinking, or how do we, you know, we, so, so so a mortal can fix the sinking, or uh, you know, the, the sinking uh, cannot be undone, or you know, they can ask questions that relate to the, the setting in the game, and right. if they ask the, if they write the correct, because it's not a, you don't actually ask a question, you have to write a statement. If they put the right statement in there, they're convinced it will then – they'll be able to decipher the text that is written in there that proves yes or no, and then they can actually follow those kind of like instructions to tell them how to fix the issues that, they, that they're dealing with. Um, which is which kind of what you're talking about where you have this book and then you co- sort of go in and you see how all these things happen, except this is now in the future instead of in your book, it was in the past. Right, so the past. there's a lot of different ways to do that, um, which could be really, really interesting. Yeah.
0: So I hope that's useful for for Leonard. He's actually, or uh, well, earlier anyway, he was in the, the chat on the stream. So I don't know if that was useful for him or not. Um, one of the... Um, One of the people on the stream had a question, and we are way over time, but we can real quick just answer real quick. Sure. uh, Do we prefer XP or Milestone? Uh, And I will real quick answer uh, Milestone for days. I have no use for XP anymore in my life. So there's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can we can go into more detail later but there's my answer.
2: Yeah, m- my my answer is it depends on what kind of game I'm running. If if I'm running a game where there's a lot of uh dungeon crawling and and site-based exploration, um then I ass- I can assign XP to everything and and do it that way, uh, in a more sort of almost, I hate to say it, but almost old school kind of fashion. Um, but the thing is that because XP, uh, you don't get XP for gold, you can never really get back to that kind of old school ideal of having that as the economy. Right. So ultimately in fifth edition, I I really think fifth edition is written to actually use milestones and they only kept XP in it because it's it's uh, a part of D D that I think people see as integral to the way D D works, um, and so so I feel like fifth edition in in a natural fifth edition in a, in a written in, in an in every adventure they've written except for Dungeon of the Man Mage, okay. In every other adventure that's been written for 5e by Wizards of the Coast releases as, as as an adventure or a box is used is is meant for milestones and i think it runs that way and it works that way i think uh because of the way the game is is set up it's really meant to be milestone xp so if you ask me if i prefer it i won't tell you yes but i'll tell you the system works better that way because of the way that the adventures are written for fifth edition
0: and if you want i knew sam was going to say that because i just recently listened to part two of the edition wars uh experience point uh uh, episode, so uh, I knew that's where you're going. Also, I would argue that the reason that Dungeon of the Mad Mage stands out as the exception is because it's not actually an adventure. It is a location. Right. It is it's a dungeon. It is not an adventure. It doesn't have a story to it. So, well, we, we it does have story, but we we cover we covered that in our review. Uh, we did. It has it has stories. It doesn't have a, it. It doesn't have a a meta story.
2: Right. It's not an overarching plot story, but you have a very narrow definition of story. So we'll, we'll leave it at that.
0: Yep. The right definition. So <laughs> uh, we're going to wrap it up. We have, we have been talking for, I don't know, my timer says about uh, over uh, an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, we already lost uh, Mike because he just couldn't handle hearing us blather on anymore. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and let it go. This is the end of Behind the DM Screen. And that's all. So say goodbye, Sam.
2: Bye, Sam.